The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyon, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for is Lawson Steele, who uh, thought yesterday was today in the scheduling of the Twitter space. But Lawson, uh, I've seen some of your uh, interviews. I'm actually quite excited for this conversation. It's a good topic to focus on. Introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in markets? And why the carbon side? Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yesterday, today. I got, got my, uh, as I was sending, the, my neck is in a twist. Uh, and thought it was happening yesterday. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, who am I? I am, by background, a guy who's uh, been an institutional equities analyst for 35 years, uh, covering for my sins uh, utilities. Um, and as part of that, uh, I've covered the carbon, European carbon market uh, since 2004, uh, the year before it began in 2005. Um I covered that simply because you know, carbon price is an important component of the electricity price. Um, and you can divide, broadly speaking, you, you can divide utilities into two groups. The really dull lot, uh, which is all about regulation and all that stuff, which bores me senseless. Uh, and then the other lot, which is actually quite exciting, which are all driven by uh, commodity prices. <clears throat> so you need to understand what the hell's going on uh, around the planet, really, uh, when the electricity price is being set uh, by market forces. And therefore, carbon was an important component. Um, I started covering in 2004, as I said, uh, in January 2006. Uh, I reckon the thing had been is just is going to crash to zero. I, I put out a note in January 2006 saying it's going to zero. It's trading about 30 at the time. Uh, and 11 months later, it literally went to zero, which is, if you think of any commodity, it's going to zero is extraordinary. And then I got seriously bored because I know the system was just oversupplied. The, the carbon price was trading around four or five euros. Um, and then in January 2018, when it was at eight, uh, I got super interested again uh, and become a mega bull. Uh, and today we're trading at, I think, at 80, 81 or so. So, so. so it's been a 10-bagger, even got up to about 100. Uh, and I think it has a lot more upside, although I'm a little bit more cautious in the short term. All right. So, so between that zero print in 2006 to 2018, um, presumably you've focused your attention and energy elsewhere. I mean, where else were you looking at from an investment perspective? And was there maybe a catalyst in 2018 for you? Yeah, I mean, it basically what, what happened, I mean, you, you've got to understand what this system is about. So maybe we just need to sort of talk about that first. 
you know, the, the European carbon, or the, just give its proper name, the EU Emission Trading System, the ETS, is a system which uh, was put in place by the EU in order for them to achieve their 2030 and 2050 climate goals. It is their most important weapon in that fight. So the carbon price has to be sufficiently high to make it worthwhile for somebody who's emitting emissions to say, actually, the price is so high, we should actually try and decarbonize. Uh, and the way the system works is that every 30th of April, although that's changing next year to September, uh, every 30th of April, you go cap in hand uh, to the EU, well, to your actual government, and say, right, forgive me, Father, I've sinned, I've emitted 10 million tons of carbon, here it is, it's audited, it's for the last calendar year, to which the EU says, or the government says, right, give me your 10 million European carbon allowances, EUAs. And if you do that, that's done and dusted. If you don't do that, there's a significant penalty, which we can talk about subsequently. With that in mind, you have an annual requirement to, to deliver these allowances, and therefore you've got to, you've got to get them. Some are given to you for free for industry, uh, zero for free if you're power, uh, and the rest you've got to buy in the market. But if the price is, you know, has been four or five euros, you know, it's, it's, it's done nothing. So, so really this system from 2005 to 2019, I'd venture to say, so a good 14 years, was a complete disaster. Uh, and it wasn't until 2013 where the EU came up with these ideas to try and resuscitate this price that, so that uh, you, know, you get to that point where carbon becomes important. Uh, but they had all these idiotic ideas and, and thoughts which they put in practice and were useless. I mean, I knew, that, I knew they were useless from the, from the get-go. And then in November 2017, uh, they came up with this new thing uh, which was designed to cut supply uh, quite aggressively, called the MSR, the Market Stability Reserve. Uh, sorry, but it's got a few acronyms, but anyway. Uh, so the MSR kicks in. And I, I, I thought, oh, God, here we go. Here comes another useless piece of you know, uh, legislation from the EU. Uh, I better adjust my model because I haven't looked at it for a couple of months or whatever it was. So I thought, well, it'd take me a couple of hours. It took me six weeks, right? Not two hours, but six weeks of looking at this thing, seeing surely I misunderstood this can't be right. Let's check this. Let's check that. Uh, and eventually, I realized that what they were proposing and came into legislation uh, at the beginning of 2019 was huge. Um, and it is, and that's really what maybe become a, a, a mega ball. You know, the system as it stands uh, has an annual reduction in the amount of allowances, the EUAs, which are offered to the market, either for free or auctions auctions happen almost on a daily basis you know they typically declining by about two three percent per annum they're going up to about four percent from 2024 uh, in order to reach that 2030 target so we knew this back in 2008 okay that you have a pretty straight downward trend which has become steeper now because they, they've got more aggressive with the 2030 target but what they what they put in place is that under certain conditions they will take out a huge swathe of additional supply. Uh, and that's what came in in 2019. And that's why in January 2018, ahead of that, I realized what the hell was going on. And I, you know, went off and spoke to about, I don't know, I must have spoken to about 750 institutional investors. In those conversations with these institutional investors, what's the 
what's the response? Is it is it seen as somewhat of a more esoteric part of the investment landscape? Is there increased uh, activity? I mean, I can tell you that I'm sure you've seen the carbon ETF from Crane Shares, right? Got quite a bit of attention, raised a billion plus dollars in assets. But I get the sense that at least in the West, most individual investors and financial advisors have no clue about this part of the, of the market. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. No, I mean, it's, it's, you're right. I think it's a, um, it's, it has been, well, it started off as a niche, right? And it's slowly gaining more uh, notoriety. And and I think with it will come, you know, a wider investment base. But it started off, you know, I, I had a number of conversations. I remember one guy in Atlanta, for example, where I went in, not to name who it was, et cetera, but yeah, pretty large investor. Uh, and I told him the story about carbon. It's very interesting. Yeah, okay. And then I went back, you know, five, four or five months later on, a ne- on another marketing tour. And I said, I said, oh, yeah, we're at carbon. Oh, yeah, tell me, tell me about that again. So I had to tell him, I, I told him four times before he eventually sort of took it on board because these guys are busy doing other stuff and everything else. And, you know, they haven't got time to, uh, I don't know, think about something new, but uh, eventually they have to. Uh, and and the, the interesting thing about carbon is that it is a completely new asset class. It's not a share. It's not a bond. It's not a commodity. It is a separate asset class. And as such, by the way, it is a fantastic uh, investment because, uh, you know, rule number one of portfolio theory, as you know, is diversify. Preferably, that means that you diversify with with assets which have low correlation to each other. So that sometimes when one's going up, the other's going down, and one's going down, the other goes up, and it, it essentially reduces the risk of your portfolio if you get it right. Well, EUAs have a very small correlation with other asset classes, 0.2 to 0.4. And what is more, are rising in price. So for, for me, generally, when I sit there objectively, I think, why doesn't everybody have this in their portfolio if they're allowed to? Uh, and, and the if bit is important because pension funds yeah, are only allowed to invest in equities of bonds, for example, uh, or they might have a remit which restricts them. But but ultimately, this is like, for me, it's a complete no-brainer. Why wouldn't you have that in your portfolio? Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of the problem is that it's, oddly enough, sounds... Uh, politicized in the U.S., whereas in Europe, it's just kind of a a way of life, right, in terms of the way that the system works. And there's also, I think, just the broader issue of length of time, right? It's it's still a fairly small market and hasn't been around that long from a liquidity perspective to make it worth sort of doing portfolio optimization on. Well, it's a $750 billion market. That's not small. Yeah, it's a fair Wait, point. I mean, I would argue that Bitcoin is still a small market, right? And I think a lot of, it's interesting because I, I interview a lot of different individuals when it comes to this space and the cryptocurrency space as well. And a lot of the, the arguments are, are similar and a lot of the constraints, I think, are similar, even though they're t- two totally different dynamics. I'll, I'll accept that if that's, if that's your view. 
<laughs> so okay, so so you you obviously got it at the right time, made quite a bit of money on it. What are the ways of getting exposure? Uh, I mean, you did it yourself, but most people probably you know are thinking uh, they can't exactly put a ticker you know for uh, for exposure to the to the space. Yeah, I mean it's it's it's, it's for the private individual or well, for most people, shall we say, it's, it's it's difficult because really what you want to get hold of is the physical European carbon allowance. And to do that, it's 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 yeah. So let's say it's nigh on impossible uh, for the average punter. You can invest, as you mentioned, in, in ETFs like CraneShare. Uh, the problem with that is that it does not give you the physical exposure. So first of all, you don't have the same impact because you know they they're using futures, right? So you know the future multiplier on the on the physical is like forty times. So you're having a 40th impact effectively um uh, as you would if you had a physical you also have the issue that you don't actually own anything uh, you know you've got a, a slice of an etf but it's not actually owning anything uh, and also you're not having an impact not only on the price but actually not having an impact on the uh on the green element either so so that's why i joined uh Kukubi, um, about a year ago now, uh, because these guys knocked on my door and said, look, you know, we know a lot about blockchain. Uh, we want to put carbon on, uh, physically UA carbon onto blockchain um, so that it can then be used, utilized by anybody, whether it's on-chain or off-chain, but makes it accessible. But we don't know a lot about carbon, so can you come on board? So bizarrely, for some reason, they thought I did. So, so it's been quite interesting, and now what we've done is we've bridged that $750 billion market on chain. Um, and therefore you can buy, so, so it's, it's quite simple. So basically you, you put a thousand bucks in, say, whatever currency, uh, we buy the carbon allowances and then you mint a token one for one and you own that token, which you can then reverse and, you know, take delivery of the, uh, EUA if you want to redeem it or you can take cash, whatever. Uh, so it's completely flexible. So you, don't have all the headache uh, and and hurdle of buying EUAs because we do all that, uh, but you ultimately own a token which is backed always at least one for one with an EUA, if not more. Um, so that means that you then have an asset, you know, which is having the direct impact on the price because you're withholding it from the market, forcing uh, a tighter supply demand balance, and you have you know it's a super green investment. Uh, and and also you can then leverage that asset if you want to start doing lending and, and whatever, right? So that's those are the two basic ways. I mean, it's, it's impossible to buy the physical as a, as an average punter. You can get the ETF, but if you own a Kikiri token, then you have forty times you know the impact of the underlying or the future. Is a uh, question in the Twitter thread from uh, X Hope. Talk about uh, dirtier industries, aluminum steel producers. What are they doing? What are some of the costs they're dealing with? How does it affect, affect consumers? Scope one, two, and three emissions. Um, any thoughts on you know, sort of the carbon movement and and industries which are not exactly adept for that 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 dynamic? Yeah, I mean the uh, fundamentally, I I don't think uh, I, I'm not a great fan of a market where you have just one supplier. So so that's it's kind of interesting that given that dynamic, I like what they're doing. I like what they're doing because actually. Well, I I, th- I think the supply dyna- demand dynamics are fascinating. It's it is a it's a 
10 years deficit of, of uh, supply. I supply will, will not meet demand in every one of the next 10 years. So that means obviously the price has to go up quite a lot. But it's also quite a clever system because because they know, right? So so if you've got, for example, uh, an Aslan Metal, you know, a, a steel producer who says, you know what, I can go and produce a steel anywhere in the world. Uh, so if you dick around uh, with the with a carbon price which is present in Europe but not present in I don't know, Ghana or wherever I want to go and build steel, uh, then I'm going to shift. So the EU says, okay, we don't want that to happen because if you up sticks and go and produce elsewhere, then clearly uh, it does doesn't do the climate any good. Probably it's slightly worse because Ghana have less carbon sort of restrictions, shall we say, uh, and also we've suffered an economic loss. So in that case, uh, we will allow the state aid rules to be bent uh, and they offer them free allowances. So, so therefore, you know, those, those, those industries are protected in the sense that their, their carbon cost is de minimis. What is interesting going forward is from 2026 onwards, really, or the beginning next year, but probably more with bigger bite in 2026, is, is they're putting in place something called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, CBAM. I told you there are acronyms. And CBAM's quite clever. CBAM says, right, look, if you want to come and and sell into Europe, uh, that's fine. You can do it under the usual rules. But you've got to be on the same carbon footing as a domestic players. And therefore, we will impose upon you a carbon border, carbon border adjustment, which means that if you have no carbon cost at home uh, or whatever carbon cost you have, you can net that off against the carbon price in Europe. So let's call it 80 euros. So you will have to pay a notional 80 euros uh, to put you on the same level playing field as the domestic producers. And then everybody's happy and you can't quibble about, uh, you know, uh, inconsistencies in the treatment. At the same time, if an industry is receiving, as it is today, those free allowances and the competitors are having to pay a full carbon cost, well, that's not fair. And therefore, the free allowances are going to get uh, sort of reduced pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. And consequently, everybody will have a full carbon cost. And of course, those free allowances, which are no longer given out for free, will be auctioned. Uh, uh, and that will increase the market size uh, as well, commensurately. Yeah, I'm always of the mindset that you have to have the, the view that things run in cycles, right? And I understand that this is sort of a a, a set cycle in some way because there's a constant reduction of the amount of supply. But is there anything that could cause the carbon credits market to have sort of a sustained bear market or sideways type of dynamic, um, whether it's you know global recession or maybe some unintended consequences of some new law that's passed? I mean, what could drive the carbon credit market to be stagnant again? I mean, right from the start of my sort of 2018 bullishness, um, yeah, the six weeks I spent and so on, I was thinking, okay, what can go wrong here? And and the reality is, is there's two things: economics and politics. Economics, um, you know, we've been through a pretty severe recession last year. We also had an un, unanticipated war. We had social uh, hardship. Um, you know, all that stuff. And and although demand has come down, the reduction in supply has outweighed that, uh, and you ended up with a deficit last year. 
this year we have a similar situation, uh, particularly as the gas price comes down relative to the coal price. So it becomes more economic to produce electricity with the with gas rather than coal. And if you produce it with gas, you use half the emissions that you have with coal. So therefore, ultimately, it reduces uh, demand or emissions, if you like. But even so, the reduction supply outweighs that. The biggest challenge always, the biggest pushback, when people said to me, you know, well, what, what can go wrong? Uh, right from the start, I said politics, uh, because this is a, a scheme set by Europe. Um, uh, and, and therefore, you can change the rules. But you can't change those rules quickly. Uh, yeah, for example, if we woke up tomorrow uh, and they shifted the goalposts, two things happen. Uh, one, people say, I'm out of here. I can't, eat. I don't care what the rule, what laws there are. I'm not complying. You can't change rules like that. And secondly, I've got to sue the pants off you. Uh, so, so they would absolutely kill the market. And the EU knows that. And in fact, if you look at every single legislation they've passed, uh, it's been it's been well thought out, well deliberated, ad nauseum. Actually, uh, you know, everybody can contribute, even the man on the street. Um, if you look at the the market stability reserve, that that supply reduction mechanism, which came in in 2019, that took four years of debate. Uh, if you look at what they've just passed. Uh, the the fit for fifty five where they've reduced the uh, the twenty thirty climate target um, well reduced made it more uh, more challenging um, uh, that's taken three years uh, so everything they do has to be deliberated uh, really you know with a lot of advance warning and everything else and actually if we think of where we are today you know they've just spent the last three years debating changes. And they've just passed them, right? They have to be rubber stamped, but that, that's just, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to happen the next couple of weeks or so. Um, so, so they're not going to pick up the baton again and go through the same process. Now, you know, w- what would trigger a political debate? What would trigger a political debate is if the carbon price gets to such a point, such a high level, that you think, hang on, something's wrong here. We're going to do something about it. So, so you're going to have the ride up, and and if the ride up is super fast and super high, uh, or just slower but super high, then you know you will have that debate. Sort of, sort of a, a victim, mean, victim of its own success, essentially. Yes, but but the other thing to take into account, right? Is <laughs> this is good for the EU, right? Because. You've got 27 member states. So the EU does the the bulk of the auctioning. They collect those auction revenues and distribute them immediately to the 27 member states' finance ministries. So it's a fantastic source of revenues. And to put it into context, we're talking about 60 billion euros a year, which to give that context uh, is one and a half times the Brexit bill, which was 40 billion. But that 60 billion is not only recurring, as opposed to the one-off of Brexit, but if I'm right, is going to you know, triple, quadruple from where it is, uh, and probably more actually, because they'll auction off for free allowances as well. Uh, so it is a fantastic source of revenues. So yes, there will be governments which, which rumble about it and you know will whinge about it, and there'll be politicians who are uh, you know paid uh, by industries to make noise. But the finance ministries bloody love this. So much so 
that the EU is trying to find ways where it can get a share of those uh, 60 billion. And of course, the carbon border adjustment mechanism will be in the EU revenue source. So, so it is, uh, you know, you can be as cynical as you like, uh, but ultimately, you know, these guys are getting paid a lot of money for this, and and it's 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 huge. It's really important uh, source of of, of revenues. The perception point, I think, is is an important one. I mean, you use the term, it's a scheme set by Europe, right? And in the U.S., you know, people want to make money, but there's home bias, which means they, you know, probably wouldn't necessarily want to do anything related to Europe to begin with. But also that it, it seems that it's hard for people to sort of get their mind around the idea that this is not going to stop, that this is a trend that is not going to reverse. Last year, there's a lot of talk about how the pendulum swung so far in the direction of green and ESG and carbon uh, that it was due to come back. And you haven't seen any any give back on that. Um, talk about for the audience sort of the the difference in perception of different parts of the world to, to carbon credits. Um, presumably, uh, the, the West really doesn't most of the investors, individuals in the West, they don't really care so much. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there are a couple of things. First of all, it's it's one planet. So, you know, whether we reduce the emissions in Europe and Timbuktu uh, or wherever else is irrelevant, right? Um, I mean, in fact, I was reading something the other day that there's some um, two oil disused or defunct oil fields in Turkmenistan uh, and they are emitting as much emissions as the whole of Europe, and they're doing that, and all they need is 19 parts fixing, uh, and then you can stop those emissions. I mean, it's, it's insane. Anyway, um, I digress slightly. You know, the, the, the bottom line is you shouldn't really care where the emissions are going to be reduced as long as they're being reduced, right, because it benefits every single person on the planet. If you have an issue about... You know, you're, I mean, I used to live in, in New York, so I understand the, the, the position of, you know, I'm in the States, why should I care about anything else? I've got a huge market here and whatever. Um, if you've got that mentality, then I, you know, nobody can shake it out of you, right? Uh, but there is a big picture out there. Uh, and when you have, you know, if you look at the States, you have, um, if, you, if you look at the carbon emission trading schemes around the world, You've got uh, WCI and you know, the West Coast uh, in the States. You've got Reggie uh, on the East Coast. You've got, obviously, Europe. You've got uh, UK, Switzerland, New Zealand, uh, and then a few other smaller ones like South Korea and so on. The size of the European market dwarfs everybody else. The total size of, of the emission trading scheme is $900 billion dollars. Uh, the European one is 750. So this one is is the big kahuna by by country mile. And if you look at all the others, they they have you know, everyone has their own different regulation, so they're not the same. Uh, and then you then you also need to think about you know we had a slight discussion on Twitter yesterday about uh, with one guy about um, you know he prefers the the voluntary carbon market. The voluntary carbon market is a completely different animal. Okay, that's the first thing to say about it. So whereas yeah, the voluntary carbon market is typically where you, you plant a tree, say, or you want to plant a forest. The tree takes 15 years to grow to maturity. You hope it survives pests, uh, fires, hurricanes, whatever, uh, and it matures into what it's supposed to do. Uh, but it takes 15 years. And by the way, eventually, uh, you know, if you've decided you're going to have a, let's call it a small, well, let's call it a 20 hectare. Uh, forest, 
then you know a tree dies so you've got to replant so that's fine that's what they typically do so they always have the same number of trees but the tree which has died is now decomposing so actually you need to plant a few more trees to recapture the decomposing of that one so actually for me the forest thing a takes a long time and b is actually an infinitesimal game because you can never carry on planting to that extent i'm not saying i'm not saying that we don't need them we do need voluntary the problem with the voluntary market today is that it is one billion dollars right 700 times smaller than the eu uh, and you've got over 12,000 projects in there which means that yeah on average a project is $80,000 give or take so the liquidity getting in everybody is open to with welcome arms when you want to want to invest in a company you try getting out and that's that's the and the problem is that each project is completely different to the other one each one requires a whole set of due diligence and time and effort and you need to value them as well individually based on your projected cash flows which are going to differ to somebody else's projected cash flows and so on so so it is, is a it unfortunately unfortunately because i want it to work and we need it to work Today, investing in the voluntary market is really difficult. Okay. And, and, and actually, there's also the issue of double counting, uh, fraud, blah, blah, blah. Right. Whereas the EU market, the emission trading scheme is one product, right? Completely fungible. You don't ha- even have to do the due diligence because the EU has done it for you. Um, and, and it has a, an indefinite life. So you buy one of those things in 2008, you could use it in 2023, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, thirty, whatever. Um, I'm not quite sure how I got to that point, but I think it's important to understand that, that differential between the two. And, and then the final point is that what the voluntary market ultimately is doing is saying you can pollute as much as you like. You can decide how much of that, if any, you want to offset, i.e. between 0 and 100. The EU ETS is saying you will reduce your emissions. Completely different. One is about reduction and the other is about offsetting as much as you like. I'm not saying that people don't offset, but but it is voluntary. Uh, so it's a completely different kettle of fish. So if you want to, and, and, and the impact of of holding an uh, EU allowance is immediate. It's not 15 years down the line. It's not about the trees decomposing and having to recapture. It is you force the price up, industry has to reduce their emissions. What about indirect ways of getting exposure to the carbon space? I mean, are there, I don't know, are there certain companies or, or other ways that people can get access without going directly to the physical? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you, you can play the futures, but as I said, but, uh, yeah, you're, you're, your ETF. So you buy a, yeah, ETF, whatever it may be. Uh, but ultimately it, it, it's a, it's a much more, more, more diluted way to play this. And, 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 and what do you earn? You, you, you can't, 
if you own a Kakubi token, for example, you can sit down at dinner table and crow to your mates that you've got something which has forced emission reductions in Europe. Or force, forget Europe, forced emission reductions on the planet, right? Happens to be in Europe, but doesn't really matter where it is. Uh, if you've got an ETF, you don't really have that. You don't have that asset. You've got a slice of something which has 40 times less impact and blah, 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 blah. In terms of companies, I, I know the company. So, for example, you know, I, I spoke to the CEO of uh, RWE, which is a German uh, electricity company, which is, was was slash is the biggest polluter in Europe. And I sat down with Marcus uh, in January 2018, uh, and I said to him, look, normally I'd ask for an hour of your time because I'm an analyst and all that. This time I'd like to offer you an hour of my time, and I'd like to... Uh, tell you about carbon because if I'm right and you do nothing, your company goes bust. Uh, and on the back of that conversation, and hopefully he had other conversations with other people too, he went and spent two billion euros uh, buying carbon allowances, which has given RWE um, a position of a, a really good position of carbon allowances, which ultimately is worth a lot, a lot of money to them. But it's an indirect way of playing it. Why would you do that when you can buy a Kikibi token? Which, you know, if you're buying that, for example, with RWE, you're not just buying those carbon allowances. They've got renewables, uh, offshore, onshore. Uh, you've got to look at their CapEx program. You've got to look at you know, a multitude of other factors, uh, which just dilutes the whole impact. Why, why didn't you just own a Kikibi token or an ETF, whatever? I mean, you just want to own the, the, the direct exposure at the end of the day. You know, you've got speculators left, right, and center that not only are they financial speculators, but also, you know, all these uh, companies. You know, if you look at the big the big electricity companies, the big oil and gas companies, they've all got their trading desks, the big chemical companies. Uh, and yes, they have to buy their compliance allowances for the end of the year but during the year they're speculating too so it almost amuses me if, if politicians come out and say oh this is all due to speculators well yes but not the speculators you're thinking about but uh yeah in the case of kakubi as i said you know the the, the flow is easy you, you put your thousand dollars down we buy the EUAs, you get the token and when you want to sell we reverse that process either you get the if you if you can take delivery and want delivery of the EUAs, you can have that or you get your cash so, so what happens is that almost on a daily basis, uh, you, the EU, German government, and Polish governments, because they decide to do it themselves, uh, have auctions, right? Uh, and you can see these on the EEX uh, platform. It tells you the actual daily auctions. And they're about uh, you know, 1.7 uh, million a day, that kind of thing. So, so the auctions happen, but then at the same time, you have a a, a or beyond that, you have the, the the secondary market, futures market, and and everything else. Yeah, you've got to remember that you know, the EU is is a club, uh, and like all good functioning clubs, uh, it needs majority. Um, so if they want, so if somebody says, "Yeah, we need to change something," uh, they need uh, what they call a qualified majority, and they have they have Parliament, they have Council. And then the commission itself. The, the council members are appointed, the 27 members are appointed by governments. Parliament are elected members. 
uh, and then the commission is a commission. So, so you need not only uh, a majority in each one of those bodies, in the Parliament and Council, uh, and com- I'm sorry, yeah, Parliament and Council, but you then need Council and Parliament to agree and the Commission to agree. So it's quite a convoluted process to change a law. I, I, I've covered utilities for 35 years, and, and I've learned one thing is don't trust the governments. Don't trust regulation unless unless you have people being well, you know, if for example, your your the politicians are have their back against the wall, then they have to give you something. For example, when Brazil uh, had a big fight with the with the uh, energy minister there, saying you're running out of electricity. No, I'm not. He said, "Yes, you are." No, I'm not. He did, and when he did, well, he lost his job. But anyway, but but. Brazil had to change the rules and give more, you know, return to to investors. You know, so if you if you got your back against the wall, or if you got your hand in the cookie jar, and the EU has a huge fist in a huge cookie jar, yeah, this is the sixty billion euros uh, of finances, which they the, the moment they tamper with this, you know, they talk they talk they had a deliberation over the last three years. About changing something, which and the market just said, "Ooh, yeah," and and the, the price tanked twenty euros, and the politicians realised and said, "Ah, okay, all right, that's not going to work." Um, but that was just a debate. Uh, but for them to to it, it, you will know long time in advance what's potentially is going to change. But I can tell you one thing: at eighty euros, which is where we are today, the price of carbon is nowhere near high enough. Right, it is not high enough to to trigger industry to change their habits, and therefore it needs to you know go up, you know, three times from where it is today. So the history of the EU is, is they work in phases. The first phase was two thousand five to two thousand seven, and that's when I realised the carbon price is going to go to zero from thirty, which it did, and that was what they call the test phase. And the, the reason it happened, by the way, was because. I, I figured out that actually uh, people had lied about their emission levels. They'd exaggerated them because they were going to get free allowances, and the EU had no idea what the level was, and they just gave them free allowances. And then you know, they had excess of these allowances floating around, and the system crashed. Uh, then from 2007, uh, 2006, well, end of, end of 2006, 2007, they audited the numbers, and then they realized the problem they had. So in 2008, they completely reset the bar. So, right, okay, now we know what the emissions are because they've been audited, and they audited every single year. Um, we have a straight line decreasing from 2008 all the way to 2030, and that is our supply line. And that comes was coming down by about 2.2% per annum. And then now that they have made the 2030 climate targets more aggressive, uh, so instead of a 40% reduction on 1990 levels, they're now going for 55%. And incidentally, they put more onus on the EU ETS system. Uh, they're requiring EU ETS industries, which are about 40% of European emissions, to reduce their emissions by 62%, not 55%. So it tells you something about the mentality where they, they got the prime weapon and they're making it even more aggressive. So so they have... so the, so the re- the reduction of 2.2% per annum is going up to about 4% per annum. So it is a think of it as a straight line uh, reduction. So it is fixed. And that's why the system is odd, because you've got one supplier with a fixed supply per annum. But 
it allows me as an analyst, I think I think it's a unique situation where I, I have a pretty damn good idea what demand is doing, and I have a super good idea what supply is doing. So I know both the demand and the supply side of the equation. I can't think of any other commodity around the planet where you can do that. Uh, so, so for me, there's a lot of certainty in here. And yes, demand will oscillate one one year or, or the other, as we've seen the last two years. But if you if you went back, right? So if you just go back and think about this another way, if at the beginning of last year you said this year we're going to have awful uh, inflation, we're going to have terrible social issues, uh, we're going to have a massive recession, and we're going to have a war, and despite all of that, the EU is going to not only stick to its climate guns, but actually uh, make them tougher, you'd have laughed your head off. But that's what happened, right? So so we've gone through that terrible year, and still this year, you know, still the dregs of recession going on, uh, and the EU is sticking to its guns. Not only sticking to its guns, but actually made them, as I said, far tougher than before. I'm, I'm completely with you. I'm, I'm, I'm as cynical as they come when it comes to governments and regulation. I've had 35 years of it. but uh, But in this case... Uh, and a very few others, I can see why they're sticking to their guns. Uh, do I believe in a global carbon price one day? I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's hard enough as it is. I mean, we've already had the UK separate <laughs> from Europe for other reasons, I guess, but nevertheless separate. Could they realign at some point? Maybe once all the divorce toys have been thrown out of the pram. Uh, but but I, I, I just don't see a global uh, things so therefore I don't see convergence in terms of the price ceiling. So, you know, the EU th- sees itself as having covered a a a significant price rise, which is good. That's yeah, you know, they think they that, that they're on they're on top of that. Um, and the basically what it says, you've got something called Article Twenty Nine A, and Article Twenty Nine A says that if the price has gone up too fast, then we'll throw some more supply into the market. What's too fast? Uh, if the average price over the last six months is uh, 2.7 times greater than the average over the last two years, then we will throw uh, 100 million additional supply into the system. Under my price forecasts, uh, where we got you know, 150 next year kind of thing, um, that does not get triggered. So, you know, I can't. I suppose I could try and work out. Well, it depends how fast it goes up and everything else. There's a lot of moving parts, but you know, is that number two hundred? I I don't know. The interesting thing too is that if you put a hundred million in, you'll still have a deficit. And actually, I think when the market works that out, the price goes even higher. Lawson, I'm curious for you, given that you're yeah, you know, you've done a lot of these media rounds talk about this, and obviously it's a it's a part of the investment environment you're you're excited about. I understand the link to the company um, that you're engaged with, but what's what's your motivation? Kind of spreading the word around the importance of carbon credits. Is it something that you just believe in as a as a system, or something that's more of a uh, kind of a layup investment that people should be aware of? Well, it's it's both. Um, uh, well, you know, I I started off by you know forecasting it and forecasting the price and. Uh, you know, I'm an analyst by heart, and that's what I was doing, and I seem to be getting it reasonably right. Uh, so that's always, yeah, nice little ego boost. And then I got to the stage uh, in October, where I went out, 21, thinking, okay, I'm getting a bit bored of this. 
you know, there must be something else I can do than, other than just forecast the price of carbon. Um, and then I was thinking about retirement as well. Uh, uh, and then in about this time last year, but earlier, uh, January last year, I thought, right, solid, I'm, I'm giving up the day job. Um, <clears throat> and then something interesting happened. What, what I thought was retirement changed into career change. <laughs> so I've had about, I don't know, 25 job offers. Uh, you kind of think, where were these people when I needed them? And then you begin to think, well, actually, you know, if we get this right, uh, and, you know, I can leave some kind of legacy here and be part of this, well, be part of this legacy, not leave the legacy uh, of actually making a difference, then that's good. But, you know, as I say to people, if you, you, you can buy, yeah, sorry to repeat it, but you can buy a Kakubi token. And you can buy it for two reasons. You can buy it because you want to be super green, uh, because it is, by my in my view, the most green thing you can you can do. Or you can buy it because of an investment. Um, and as investment is great because, as I said, you get a portfolio diversification where you're reducing the risk of your portfolio, and you've got an increase in the reward because of the the way I see the price going. the The bottom line tends to be when the shit hits the fan. People care about their money and not green or anything else. But it doesn't matter what you think because you can invest in this. You can buy this because you want it as an investment and you get super green for free. Or you buy it because you want to be super green and you get a great return for free. I mean, take your pick. It doesn't matter. But you're, you're doing both. So, so my motivation in the past has been about calling the investment right. Uh, and I and I still like doing that. I mean, I was, yeah, I want to pe- make help people make money, um, uh, and at the same time, you've got the super green thing. So it's I know, yeah, take your pick. It's both. That's a, a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow Lawson Steel here on Twitter. Uh, thank you, Lawson. Really do appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Okay. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.